You're listening to Alternative Thinking, Both Sides of the Coin, a production of the Canadian Association of Alternative Strategies and Assets, where we explore today's markets and alternative investments from two distinct perspectives. In this episode, we speak with an outsourced chief investment officer and a specialist in using derivatives to manage risk in a portfolio as they discuss their recent market positioning, what happened during the COVID-19 crisis, and where they're finding opportunities today for their clients. James Braun is the president and co-founder of CASA. All opinions expressed during the show by James and our show guests remain their own and should be used for informational and educational purposes only. Find out more about CASA at casa.ca. Welcome, everybody. Today is April 2nd, and we have uh, two speakers on uh, alternative thinking. Uh, Jeff Dover with Heirloom Investment Management and Cambez Kazemi with Financia Constance. Uh, maybe we'll start with introductions. Uh, Jeff, you can, uh, you can give us your, your intro, please. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast. I'm, I'm very pleased to be sharing this session with Cam. We've known each other for many more years than I think either of us would care to admit. Um, my name is Jeff Dover. I'm the founder of Heirloom Investment Management. Uh, we operate from Canada, the US and Dubai, and we focus really on providing both total portfolio and specifically targeted investment solutions to family offices. Uh, we did start off life as a single family office. so feel that we have a pretty unique perspective on on exactly what families need and have tailored an investment solution that uh, that delivers um, pretty much exactly what uh, what families uh, families need today uh, so our biggest difference from most people is the way that we view portfolios uh, we view portfolios not as asset classes but really as as themes and collections of what we call return drivers which help us understand more what we're allocated to Hi, James. Uh, thanks for having me on this podcast. It's definitely a pleasure to uh, have a discussion with Jeff that uh, I've known for a long time. Uh, my name is Canvis Kazemi. Uh, I'm a partner at La Financière Constance. Uh, we're a boutique asset management and advisory firm uh, specializing in all things uh, systematic and derivative. Um, as a background, uh, I started in the financial industry in 2001, so uh, that has been a, a very useful experience, especially for where we're living today, and we're going to get into it, as I uh, had the opportunity to go through uh, the September 11, the, the quantquake, the financial crisis that followed, and uh, the very um, new and abnormal times that we lived since the financial crisis. So really look for, looking forward to this conversation. Great, thanks. So maybe let's talk about how... Um how your clients or the investors that you interact with, how, how do they prepare it all for this? I mean, not really specifically for COVID and, and all the, the fallout, but were they kind of prepared for this type of uh, market route uh, with this very, like as Rubini said, it's not going to be a, a V or a U or an L. It's going to be like an I and everything did kind of fall off a cliff and then go up and down. So did they have their portfolios kind of set up for this type of uh, situation or were they, was everyone caught unawares? Yeah, James, I, I'd say, as I mentioned, we really have, uh, I guess, essentially two lines of business. One of them is asset management, where we um, have, um, you know, clients for whom we run their money according to our strategies. And the other one is the advisory side. So I think I'll, I'll develop on the advisory side. We, we had met with a lot of potential clients and prospects, and I can tell you that by wide and large, uh, the majority 
were not necessarily prepared for what we have witnessed. Uh, obviously, sophisticated investors were cognizant of the fact that uh, we had been in a bull market for a long time and there was obviously a, a lot of uh, leverage in the system. Uh, the uh, you know high yield issuance was very high. Covenants uh, you know covenant light debt was at ninety percent. So there was a consciousness of the risk uh, by these high um, you know net worth individuals or family offices that we talked to or some endowments, but they had not, to our knowledge, act acted forcefully in putting uh, you know strong hedges in place yet, though maybe some. So the general sense was um, that they were not totally ready for the abruptness of what we faced. And that might explain in itself why there was some, uh, you know, feedback loop and make things uh, a little bit more extreme than we had ever witnessed on the sell-off. Yeah, and that from Jeff, like you guys went from an SFO where I guess you were just worried about your own money to being an OCIO, which um, is uh, kind of like camp situation, but I guess more in a, a holistic side of the of the all of the investments of a family um did did, did your clients have an inkling of this or they, were they uh like like cam said they they knew something was maybe coming but no one really knew what what it might be and and kind of again caught people unawares well unfortunately my uh, crystal ball was in the shop for cleaning uh, a couple months ago so uh, we didn't get to peer into the crystal ball and and see this exact crash coming um but you know my my view is uh is that having positioned for something to happen was the right thing to do. So we were clearly in a later stage of a very long bull market. Um, and we started taking market risk off uh, probably uh, probably about two years ago. And 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 really at the time, you know, our, our clients did question whether that was the right thing to do. In, in retrospect, it turns out to have been a little bit too early that we started doing that. Uh, but then ultimately when the crash did come, uh, everybody was, was happy that we were effectively out of the quote unquote market. We did, we did have some, uh, you know, some gross exposure to the uh, to the market generally, but it was uh, very well hedged. So our clients did not uh, did not suffer too badly. And actually, the, the opposites happened. It's it's put us in a great position to buy some dislocated assets um, when when you know hedges are suddenly worth uh, worth a lot. And so, what kind of hedges did you put on? Was it mostly just you're in cash, or was there um, something that would be have outsized outsized uh, gains like a like a or something like that or some kind of option strategy? Yeah, I sort of view it in two different ways. So risk management. So in terms of taking off risk, you know, our focus for the last couple of years is, has not been so much moving to cash, but but moving more towards things that are simply not exposed or not, you know, dramatically exposed to the market. And so that's really been our focus. And, and those things have sort of continued ticking along. A lot of them provide cash flow, um, which, you know, gives us, ca- gives us cash at, at, at a time when it's uh, opportune to, to buy uh, undervalued assets, uh, but then the second side of the coin is 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 for the long sort of exposed positions that we did have. Uh, we did take uh, hedges against them. Now, hedging is a very difficult. Uh, thing to do and, and often is very expensive if you want to do direct hedging. Uh, so we did have some sort of direct hedges. So you mentioned puts, for example. So uh, again, some of our equity exposure, we certainly did have some uh, direct equity puts, but we really found that the the value, or at least the, the low cost hedges that were available in the market were not so much uh, on the equity side. Uh, they were very expensive. So we found hedges more in the form of currencies and in interest rates and commodities and in things other than equity hedges. 
Wow, and how, how would you structure those? Because the equity one's pretty easy. You just kind of pick a spot where you don't want to lose any more, 20% down or whatever it might be. Um, but it's interesting on the interest rate side, they, they have gone down. Uh, maybe that's the way you played that. And then the FX, uh, I guess the US dollar rallied. But, uh, but, but you know, there's always going to be one one up and one down. How, how did you set up those hedges? Well, this is, uh, this is when you start uh, needing an expert such as Cam to help you. Uh, but at the end of the day, it, it looking at where the cheap sources of volatility were in the market, uh, and they change all the time. Uh, so if you had asked us a year ago, uh, we owned a lot of oil volatility. Uh, we owned call options on gold. Uh, we owned uh, options on interest rate volatility. So, so not necessarily playing direction on interest rates, although we did have a, a bias that, that rates would continue going down, but it was more volatility in interest rates. And so it was actually finding the cheap sources of volatility, which has been the majority of our hedge focus over the last couple of years. Uh, lately, it's gone, uh, you know, we've shifted out of things like oil volatility. Suddenly, real volatility in oil is very high and very mm -hmm. expensive. Uh, so selling that and focusing more on things like uh, precious metals, and that's both directional as well as volatility, uh, but also uh, things like currency volatilities. Wow. Well, let's go to Cam. What what uh, type of strategies were you speaking to your clients about uh, a year, six months ago, two days before this kind of got out? Yeah. And uh, how, how have they fared? Yeah. So uh, those are very interesting questions. I think that uh, just to step back, the issue around hedging is that there's always this impression that hedging is an insurance cost that you pay and then you forego. And obviously, if you approach it that way and then you look at the market that has gone only one way 11 years, you see that people look at it as kind of dead money and they don't want to do anything about it. Um, and yeah. life insurance is only good if something happens. Yeah, exactly. Now, the conversations I try to have or what I try to explain to people is that, you know, hedging is not just about purchasing options or, or puts or whatever it might be. Uh, of a structure, you can, you have to start first by understanding your risk. I mean, that's where the whole thing starts. Sometimes mm -hmm. the best hedge is just to, to reduce your exposure as opposed to go and do any sort of fancy, sophisticated structure thing. Sometimes the best hedge is uh, a little bit more cash. and Or sometimes the best hedge is to realize that you have hidden correlations that might hit you and just change a little bit your asset allocation. So in that sense, I think the biggest conversation we try always to have with people is almost a one-on-one, -on -one, sitting and understanding uh, how they see the world, what their book is, because everybody has a different approach uh, at the end of the day or, or different uh, uh, return requirements and, and risk tolerances. And then mm -hmm. only start saying, okay, so uh, you know, are there easier things to do before we get even to structure any sort of thing? Um, so that's that's number one. To come back more specifically to some things that might be resonating, uh, we look at the way we look at the world is in terms of probabilities and price of risk. So when you look at uh, you know options in the market, there is very valuable embedded information in options because they tell you what the market thinks on where things are, where an asset or whether it's a single stock, an index, bonds, or whatever will be at a certain point in the future. They'll tell you, oh, 50% chance is going to be between this and that, and then 10% chance between that. So it's an amazing additional information that you have that oftentimes, if you're dealing only with valuing 
uh, assets. Uh, you know, if you value a bond, you value an equity, you don't look at that. And it's not a world that necessarily you're exposed to that. But nowadays, I think it's very important to add that level of information to your uh, process of building your portfolio and so on. So that's something that we did. And in light of that, we monitored that all the time. And the conversation we were having five, six months ago where, you know, optionality is very cheap on things like precious metal at that time. You know, gold has a VIX, which is called GVZ, and that was somewhere sub 10. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if you, you look at the fact that we had already been quite lower and that the, the, the rates could be cut potentially in a bad scenario, um, then having optionality on the gold was something that was really, you know, give you a lot of gearage and leverage if something bad happened and that view of going to safe assets realized. The other one that was very interesting is things uh, that Jeff mentioned. I mean, the commodity side and especially oil, um, you know, if you think that you're going into a situation where demand is going to be lower on generally in the economy, so... Uh, and you look back historically at the various recession that you have had, uh, oil can be a pretty good uh, hedge for a, a recessionary scenario and um, options on it were very, very, uh, very cheap. So that's the other kind of thing that, uh, hmm. you know, we we were talking to clients about and we actually implemented it on, in our own, uh, you know, investment vehicles. Um, talking about, uh, you know, uh, the crystal ball uh, subject that Jeff was mentioning. Yeah. I, obviously, nobody has a crystal ball. We didn't either. But I have to say, we started getting very concerned as soon as the news uh, uh, of the pandemic was out in China. And we monitored very closely its development in um, Asia and, and the Middle East. Um, and, uh, you know, by February, we really uh, were giving a high probability to a situation where this thing could get out of hand. So uh, in light of that, we put several notes out um, that are available and and timestamped. I think on February 24th, uh, we came out and said, you know, this thing can get really out of hand. There's 40% probability that that bad scenario is going to materialize. And then we reiterated mm-hmm. some of these things that I mentioned. I mean, exposure to downside on on, on crude, uh, the fact that the rates might cut. In fact, bond volatility was very low too. So um, we didn't have a crystal ball, but uh, we just think in terms of outcomes. It was like, what can we have in place that will work very well if things go bad, but it's not going to cost us a leg and an arm if it's business as usual. And that's how we always approach things. Oh, that's interesting because uh, when people do security analysis and the stocks and bonds are always thinking about how much is this worth, how much will it be worth going forward, and then they buy and sell based upon what they think. But it seems in the options markets, you can seemingly assign a probability to, well, it will, no matter what you think, the market thinks there's a 50% chance this thing's going to go up or down, whatever the percentage might be. And uh, yeah, you're right. That's pretty uh, pretty valuable information. Um, and then, so I just have one more, one more kind of drill into the area of looking at the exposures from your clients and, uh, and maybe Jeff, you can answer this too. Like, do you look at, is it more the securities? Like they have a lot of equity exposure, a lot of bond exposure rates or credit, and then, uh, or, or even just more say more in the security side, stocks and bonds or real estate or whatever. Um, or do you get a bit more sophisticated and put into the factors of breaking out the rates and the credit? 
and um, various other factors, like there might be momentum stocks and value and such, and then work on that? Or is there something more to that? Or how, how do you how do you figure out which which parts to hedge? Well, from uh, from our perspective, we have a very different view of constructing portfolios from most people. So the way that we build our portfolios is not from an asset class perspective. We build our portfolios based on collections of what we call return drivers. So one can think of them as what is going to cause an investment to perform well or what's going to cause an investment to perform poorly. And as soon as you take a look at your portfolio in that lens, you suddenly understand in much better detail what your portfolio is actually exposed to, both positively and, and negatively. And to a point that uh, that Cam made mm-hmm. is I think the biggest mistake that people make in, in sort of risk managing their portfolio is you got to start with step one, which is actually understanding the risks that you have. And and most people don't really understand that. So what, what, But once you have yeah. that understanding of, of what's going to cause your portfolio to go up or down, you can then focus on, which is the hard part, shifting your portfolio's exposure exposures to uh, things that you think will perform well. So in our case, we try to uh, invest in what we call themes, but ultimately our long-term, highly probable secular trends and try to make sure that our, our portfolios are exposed to those things and try to make sure that we've at the very least um, not concentrated risks in things that we don't think are going to going to perform well and, and sort of where possible we'll then try to try to hedge those what we call undesired risks out as much as possible uh, but at the end of the day it all starts with that understanding of what are you exposed to and only only once you know that can you try to focus on 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 mitigating or, or hedging out that risk so our clients portfolios you know we we got out of net developed market equity exposure uh, probably two years ago or probably 18 months ago. Um, we've had some long exposure, mm-hmm. some gross exposure, uh, but then that's all been hedged out. So our exposure to the quote unquote market has actually been relatively minor. Um, and so that's the way we've positioned our portfolios over the last couple of years. And it's frankly the way that I think most people should view it when as you get as the later you get into a bull cycle, the lower and lower your exposure should be on a portfolio basis to the uh, to the overall market. And it's just a matter of probabilities. How about you, uh, Cam? Is, are you more into the trends, themes and drivers or is it? Uh, typically more from the portfolio point of view from your clients of the the securities and the factors or or something along along those lines? So um, our uh, strategies that we run as asset managers, uh, we have really two types. Uh, Some are systematic. Uh, They're not black bus per se. I mean, they come from us observing the behavior markets and then making hypotheses on them. And then essentially, I, I call it is a game of having a you know high hit ratio. So you want to make sure that your signals are more often right than wrong, and then obviously uh, risk and drawdown management. Now, uh, so those are the things that we do in house, and we obviously run also money for for clients. In that sense, we also have a bucket that we allocate to um, you know things that we're, we've been talking about, which are uh, uh, macro views. Uh, tail views, discretionary views. Uh, and uh, the type of things that I mentioned, they go into that bucket. Uh, the other conversation that we have on an advisory basis uh, lately have been really having a wide range. I mean, we have had conversation with people who, um, you know, for example, family offices that had uh, a very uh, wide exposure to, say, a real estate. 
uh, or private equity. And the question there is, you know, uh, how to hedge these if a scenario happens, because you don't have necessarily yeah. the direct options. You're not going to, you know, there's no private equity option you're going to structure something with. And that's where it takes us to look at history um, and, you know, different macro scenarios and look at how, uh, you know, those fold unfolded and how and to what extent those framework can be applicable to what we're doing now. So one of the things that I've been talking about, uh, you know, a lot and uh, at the beginning of this happening in February and even before is that for people who don't have public market exposure, but they do have a lot of, you know, um, alternative assets like real estate, private equity and so on. It's very important to look at historical scenarios like, uh, you know, the 1970s. Uh, obviously, 1930s are very widely discussed, uh, but also, you know, 1970s, 1930 and 40s. Those are areas and times that you want to look into to get a little bit of a hint of what kind of, you know, uh, hedges, quote unquote, you can put in place. Uh, they might not have anything to do directly with your book, but they do address some of the risks that you're inherently exposed to. And it goes back to Jeff's point is really the whole exercise understand. And I can't emphasize this enough to understand your risk. I always say, uh, you know, the first risk manager is the portfolio manager. And right. that's the first, you know, uh, <laughs> trenches. <laughs> Uh, of, of, of risk management. And then you have all the, uh, you know, operational and expertise in the back, but it starts really at the forefront. Um, and, uh, you know, we, I think we have to do a lot of uh, more work there. Uh, I'll just kind of close this chapter by saying one example I, I always give is we approach risk management in general in an industry uh, today or through diversification, right? This has been, you know, Markowitz since 19, whatever, 60s. Uh, very little change to it. Uh, can you imagine, uh, you know, running a computer or a car that has little change since the 1960s? I mean, it, it, you wouldn't do it for anything else. Yeah. So yeah. it's time really to make sure that you incorporate all the other developments that are happening in the world into it. And they're being done by sophisticated guys. Like, you know, a lot of the pension funds are at the forefront of this. Some of the you know, very sophisticated family offices, including Jeff, the conversations that we have, they're, they're really at forefront of this. But it has to really now permeate to, um, I would say, general, you know, uh, investment, general masses, retail, and so on and so forth. And uh, maybe, uh, you know, what we are living today would be an impetus to for that to happen. So what are the um, the seatbelts and airbags and side, side airbags and crash bumpers and all that, that, that we see now, like Phil, we had actually a Harvard lecturer. Um, he was talking to a, a private equity crowd of investors that had um, dry powder. Uh, and what do they do with it before it's called? And he said, well, maybe the, the Russell 2000 is a good proxy for a private equity. And, and if you have that, then you're getting those types of returns. It's not perfect, but whatever. Didn't really have one for venture capital because it's, it's uh, it just doesn't have a good, could kind of benchmark or proxy in the public markets but uh, and then there's another family office that was building a lot of houses uh, or construction and they were hedging their lumber and rates and such um, but what, what kind of proxies would you match say to a real estate investor or one that does have private equity to uh, to the public markets to, to hedge their bets not quite like a, an, a, like a, an S&P put but but what, what kind of products do you use there Cam and uh 
So, uh, you know, uh, as I was mentioning, I mean, it's the, the inherent thing that uh, you have exposure to when you have that kind of book is uh, depending how leveraged you are, right? You can be uh, having real estate exposure with very low leverage or you can have taken a lot of leverage. And then it becomes very, I guess, the conversation has to be very customized because then if you do have leverage, how much of it you have and what are the terms of the leverage? But in a generic way, you'd be exposed to, uh, for example, you'd be exposed to interest rates through any sort of book that has tremendous uh, real estate exposure and, and, and leverage. So that's an area you want to look at and dig deeper to see what the relationship of your book is to the interest rates in different extreme scenarios. And uh, so, so that's one thing. Private equity has some similitudes with that because, again, if you're doing uh, you know, leverage deals, uh, again, you have the real, ex, uh, real uh, rates exposure, but also depending on what kind of private equity firm you are, you might have a lot of FX exposure. Uh, there is, especially, for example, the European uh, private equity firms, they really have diverse books across the globe in, in some cases, as well as some, I guess, in America, I, I don't know as much. We haven't interacted with them as much. But, uh, or in Canada, US, you can have cross-currency exposure. So, those are the things that are there, and when things move a lot, will be significant. I mean, look at the Canadian dollar, for example, right now, right? We, we went in a heartbeat at sub 130 to 142. So that's, you know, a 10% move. Um, so it does affect, especially if you add to that leverage and, and loans and so on. So those are the direct, more direct uh, instruments that you can use. And then the secondary order is going to be what we discussed just before, which is, you know, how your book will react to a recessionary scenario. If you're a private equity uh, firm, what kind of industry exposures you have, uh, then that also as well. So you do the kind of first layer is more macro, and then the second layer uh, is going to be to more specific drivers, or you know, uh, Jeff was referring to return drivers. So that that's kind of the roadmap of how you approach that. Great. And then Jeff, do you have any uh, any comment on that? What what you use specifically to hedge? And uh, I guess my follow up question is. Uh, Institutions probably get it, and um, I shouldn't say more so, but they, you know they they have a, a they're very long term view because some of them have beneficiaries that'll be retired for quite a while, like perpetual, like endowments and such. So, but but how long will will family office clients allow you to be wrong when you have these hedges on, and they may maybe aren't that profitable for a while, um, or is there just that type of trust where they're like, okay, we know something's going to happen, you're figuring this out for us. And uh, we're going to trust you to uh, to do this. Uh, but I guess at some point there, they might say, uh, I'm not sure if this is working here. So what's your idea there with the, say, the investor psychology and how they react to the situation? Well, you've, you've hit on an interesting uh, topic, which is uh, family offices really have three great advantages when it comes to the investment world. So first, they're large enough to be able to afford sophisticated resources, uh, but they're also small enough uh, to be able to take advantage of sort of smaller, more attractive opportunities. Uh, the second one, which is very critical to the question you just asked, uh, which is that they truly have a long time horizon. So most families would claim that they have a multi-generational uh, time horizon. And then third, probably most mm -hmm. important of all, is if you're a family, you're not going to fire yourself 
itself. So nobody needs to worry about putting up strong quarterly numbers or else they're going to lose their job. And unfortunately, I think much of the investment uh, industry is geared around firms that are too large, people that are making decisions that uh, that are geared towards just not losing their jobs uh, and truly not having a long-term time horizon. So the key answer to the question you just asked is really how willing is the family to take advantage of, of, of the three great advantages that they have. Um, and our, in our case, we're, we're very lucky. Our, you know, we've, we've, we only work with a small number of, of families and we get to know them extremely well and you build a high level of trust. And so generally they, they trust in what we do. Uh, but very importantly, you know, Cam raised the point earlier about a hedge can just be viewed as a, as a draw on, on a, a drag on your returns every year. We, when we look at hedging, so our, our priority is not to try to match up directly a long exposure and then a hedged short exposure. So because that just detracts from the return. So our focus always is on finding things that will act as a hedge, quote unquote, as a hedge, uh, but at the same time deliver a positive return. So when I was mentioning uh, the oil volatility, uh, just a great example, um, that both you know right. provided a hedge, but we also made a lot of money on it. Um, and our hedge book, you know, we don't always get it right, but our hedge book generally serves to provide both a hedge in, in cases of both upside and downside volatility in the markets. Uh, but at the same time, we tend to make money from our hedge book. Uh, and an important element of that as well is capital efficiency. So one thing that, that in retail investors in particular, but uh, much to my chagrin family offices love as well, uh, is structured products. So I hate structured products. One gen- one issue with them is they're generally geared towards making the provider of the structured product a lot of money in certain circumstances. Uh, and, and so the commissions are, are oh, yeah. way too high. But then the, the much bigger issue is actually they tend to be very capital inefficient. So you end up with an investment that's $100 and only $2 of that is actually put into the, th- into the thing that you think you're investing in or the, or the actual sort of risk exposure. And the other $98 sits there in a, in a T-bill or something. And, and so it ends up being a very capital inefficient product. And the way that people view their hedge books often tends to be very similar to that. And it's the same thing with, and I don't know how Cam manages it at his fund, but it's the same thing with a lot of managed futures funds. So 95% of your capital is sitting in a, in a T-bill and not mm-hmm. really earning you anything, while only 5% of your capital is actually at work. So if you can avoid those capital inefficiencies and find things that act as a hedge and you know are at least going to break even or if not make you money, then I think that's the sort of golden ticket. Yeah, I've been a fair bit of experience in the structured product side too, and it always seemed like they're taking risk off the desk. Like you'd see the semi-variance swaps come out, and you're like, this just makes this just makes the investor lose when one ball goes up. They want the opposite, right? Like you want to have something that's that's long ball, not short, but um, yeah, so, but it's packaged up pretty nicely. Um, well, let's think going forward. How long do you think this will last, this new, new normal or whatever it is? Um, and what will come out on the other side? Um, I mean, everybody seems to be an epidemiologist now. I know I am. I can pronounce it, so that's great. Um, what, what do you think, Jeff? And what have you heard from, of course, you're here, U.S., Dubai. Uh, I imagine your BCP is very very uh, robust so you're able to keep things going but what uh, what do you think is going to come out of this well luckily as i mentioned earlier my crystal ball was just in the shop for cleaning so it's uh, it's nice and clear and transparent now so i can give a great pro- prognosis um the, the short answer is i have no idea and, and anybody that tries to to guess is really only guessing there's there's not really a, an intelligent answer to this 
So the way that we address uh, something like this that has such a high degree of uncertainty is, is through effectively scenario analysis. So we, a couple of things could happen, right? Either this virus could continue disrupting life uh, as it is currently doing for months and months and months. That's sort of you know the worst possible scenario. Uh, another possible scenario is that they discover a, a vaccine and everything goes back to normal, uh, really by the end of April or in the next month or two. Uh, and then the third possible scenario, which is probably the most likely, is the effects start to to mitigate in certain countries sooner rather than uh, than in other countries. It drags on for a long time in other countries, and you just end up with dislocations all over the place. So when when creating a portfolio. I think it's very important that you don't necessarily pick one possible outcome and design only for that one possible outcome. You really have to look at your portfolio and all of those outcomes and try to figure out what can I, how can I construct it such that in all of those cases, I, you know, I'm at least, I'm at least not ruined, right? I'm at least breaking even or, or maybe down only a slightly little bit, but in general, I should actually be up, you know, mildly at least in, in all of those cases. And so I think it's very important to design things with, with scenario analysis in mind. And so what are your trades now? Or can you say? Oh, yeah. You know, no, nothing that we do is so uh, intellectually brilliant that uh, that I can't share it. Uh, you know, you, you look at what we do and generally it's actually quite simple. Uh, we like to think that there's an elegance to the to the simplicity. But, you know, our, our main focus, and it has been for a couple of years, is, is focused on things that are truly uncorrelated to the market. So we've been doing a lot of asset-backed lending and a lot of hard asset-based uh, leasing, for example, um, you know, things that will continue uh, to perform even even if, I mean, if it's a depression again uh, for a couple of years, maybe we start getting hurt. Uh, but in, in most cases, it's it's going to be fine. Um, and then similarly, in, in the, in then we pick individual exposures. Like, for example, we think the developing markets are a great opportunity right now. They've been crushed. Uh, and especially in Asia, they've managed to control the virus better than anyone else. Um, and so we think that actually Asia in particular, but emerging markets generally are looking extremely good on a value basis. So we would take some long exposure to that and match it up against a hedge that would protect us in the event that, you know, turns out we're wrong and we actually go into a, a real depression. So I think I think a lot of uh, truly uncorrelated strategies, asset-backed lending, uh, litigation finance, um, life settlements, uh, unfortunately, can perform much better in a, in a disaster scenario. Mm. Um, emerging markets. We think currencies offer very attractive opportunities. So, you know, the Australian dollar got below 60 cents not too long ago, while the Canadian dollar was still at 72, 73. You know, those things are really driven by fundamentally the same factors. And historically, they've been pretty close to par. So that provides a pretty interesting uh, relative value trade. Um, The British pound got to, you know, 118, 117, somewhere down there, um, where, you know, it, it historically has been at 130 and all the way up to two. Uh, so we think that's an interesting, uh, interesting opportunity. And precious metals, of course, as, as Cam mentioned, you know, gold, you know, it is it has performed extremely well. But we think uh, call options on gold in particular, so you don't have the downside risk. But if it does go to 2000 or 2500 or 4000, as some people say, you know, you're going to profit handsomely from those gold calls. Wow, we'll put it, put it to Cam. What do you, what's going to come out of this and, and what are your trades? The one thing that's going to happen is at some point in the future, uncertainty is going to fade. And uncertainty is, what is uncertainty? is essentially the price of risk is what in the option markets you call volatility. 
So that's going to start coming down. And to, to you know, further emphasize that point, if you go back to look at the Great Depression and what the realized volatility was then, it was tremendously high. But it did come down, even though we went into the 30s, which was, uh, you know, a very much, uh, very difficult decade where the economy was under pressure and so on and so forth. But volatility came down. If you look at other instances, you know, 1970s, uh, 1987. Now, this is not a process that's going to be overnight. We're not saying, you know, tomorrow. But uncertainty fades as we adapt and adjust and we get more information coming. And, you know, to your point, what's the trade? That's one of the things that we're talking um, to, um, you know, most people that we have a relationship with is that you have to get ready to make sure that you benefit from that. Because and but doing that can be you know requires specific expertise. I mean you don't want to get your you know uh, have a short tail exposure just to achieve that. So I'm not going to get into the details of that. But that's one theme that's going to be uh, you know I think is a, is an interesting risk reward because it's somewhat independent of the scenarios of what things are going to be valued at. I would concur with Jeff also that you know precious metal upside exposure does make sense you know if you go back to 2008 you can see that in the first legs uh, you know people were on leveraging on everything uh, gold also took a tremendous hit but once it became clear that this was a you know problem that's going to linger and stay with us that's where you start uh, and rates started being cut which is now we're already at zero so that element is not going to help the, the cause of the gold going higher because we're already there but that's where you started seeing precious metal and refuge values starting to go up. There's a, one other thing I'll, I'll just add, though. What, one great uh, free hedge that Canadians uh, have access to is the Canadian dollar. Cam mentioned it earlier, but the Canadian dollar is essentially a risk-on currency. So one thing that people always ask me is, if I'm a Canadian dollar investor, should I hedge my exposure for non-Canadian dollar assets? And my answer generally is absolutely not. Um, if, if you look at what's happened historically, is the Canadian dollar has moved very much uh, counter to markets. And so if you own uh, a non-Canadian dollar asset, um, the your return volatility is much lower if you don't hedge it than if you do hedge it. So Canadians and Australians are in the same position, but Canadians and Australians should absolutely not hedge their currency exposure if, if their goal is to dampen volatility. Wow. That's kind of counterintuitive. Don't hedge to hedge. That's, uh, that's, that's great advice. Thanks. Well, thank you both. Uh, thanks to Cam. Thanks, Jeff, uh, for taking time from uh, from your working with clients and, and reacting and, uh, I guess, proactively planning for what, what will be coming up in the markets. We look forward to having you both on another podcast sometime soon, and I uh, hope you have a great day. Thanks very much, James. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having us, James. Uh, it was definitely a pleasure. Thank you.